recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. Welcome to episode 34 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchy, along with you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan's an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and online at duntroon.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend. And you can follow us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And subscribe to our channels on YouTube and SoundCloud as well. But most important of all, please sign up for our newsletter. Actually, you and we didn't get one out last week, but uh, get updates most of the time when new episodes drop and other show information at prlawpodcast.club. That's prlawpodcast.club. You and what's happening? Well, Cam, I'm living my uh, my best my best lockdown life over here. In yeah, Toronto. it's all back on again. Hey. Well, well, yeah, but unfortunately, uh, my wife and I, we strategically chose probably the worst time to have some renovations oh, on no. our place, all with the best of intentions, right? I mean, we're, and I think a lot of people are doing this right now. We're home a lot more than we used to be uh, and sort of sitting in our, our space and thinking, huh, wouldn't it be nice to sort of do this? <laughs> and wouldn't it be nice to sort of do that? So we did, uh, you know, we have a, a wall down in our living room and a big partition up. And, uh, and then of course we kind of hit total lockdown. So we've been trying to share space as best we can with, uh, with our one lovely, lovely, uh, contractor, Roger, who's been coming in trying to build a wall for us. Wow. So it's, it's been, uh, it's been, it's been colorful. So there's how, no, how are things you're, well, there's, there's, sorry, go ahead. there's no restrictions on that guy working then, I guess, Hey, he can come into your place and just start to start doing the renos. Well, yeah. So construction work is deemed to be an essential service. So there's sort of a list of essential services that are, are allowed to continue to go on. And, you know, thank, thank goodness for that because he had already started when the lockdown occurred. Um, so, you know, if, if he, if he were to have just had to pick up and leave, uh, then it would have been a problem. But I mean, obviously when he's here, you know, um, we're masked, we're socially distanced, we're on a completely different floor. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is, this is a real issue though, too, Cam, for a lot of those essential services, notably construction, Mm -hmm. a lot of workers have raised concerns about their health and safety, right? Where, you know, if they have a general contractor, someone who sends them out on a job, what are they, you know, what are they going to do? Um, you know, they're sort of expected to show up to work and a lot of them rightly so don't necessarily feel safe in that in that environment, right? Yeah, this is this is getting tough. I mean, even here in Hong Kong, you and we're going into our toughest or strictest lockdown measures uh, now. So, I mean, I was in the office today, uh, Monday Hong Kong time, uh, but for the rest of the week, probably working from home. You know, we're we're going to have uh, fines now for for breaching sort of the social distance measures of of two thousand Hong Kong dollars, which is about three hundred U.S. dollars, give or take a few bucks, and then you know restrictions at restaurants down to two people at a table, um, which again is the restaurants are still open, but you know, we've, we've never gotten to this level. And the reason is that, you know, we had 76 new cases today, 
I think we had 90 something yesterday. So, I mean, the, the numbers are small by, you know, US standards, but they're high for here when we were hovering just around the double digit mark, you know, for, for the last couple of months. So it's, you know, it's, it's the next wave. We're calling it the fourth wave actually coming through here. I won't tell you what kind of numbers we're putting up here, Cam, but I can tell you there are a lot more than 70, 76 a day. Um, yeah. And I mean, we, we, you can't even have two people within a, within a restaurant. It's, it's strictly takeout only for restaurants uh, around the city of Toronto um, which of course, you know, once again, is just striking another blow to, to the industry. Um, you know, the other day restaurants are still allowed to do effectively off sales. So you can, you can go in and purchase beer and wine to take away from restaurants as well. And, um, you know, a colleague of mine, we, we went and grabbed some beer picked up from, uh, from a, a local bar that's uh, close to our office and spoke briefly with the owner. And, you know, he was just, he was just devastated. He said, uh, you know, American Thanksgiving is one of the busiest weekends they have all year, largely because everybody wants to come in and watch the, the American football games. And he said, you know, this is, this is crippling. I mean, we don't know if we're going, going to be able to survive this and, and come back and they're trying to negotiate rent abatements and deferrals from landlords. It's a, it's a really, really bad situation for a lot of small business owners right now, but particularly the service industry who really, really relies on this time of the year um, to make money, particularly this year where they've had to have been closed for for a number of months. Yeah, I really shudder to think about the damage that's being done. I mean, we're not even starting to measure it, really, because we're still in the crisis. But I mean, things could look so different. Um, you know, once things go back to normal, I'm using air quotes there. Um, I don't think we'll ever go back to how, how it was uh, in 2019. I will say one thing, though. There was a tweet that I saw this week, and, and, and this was very apropos, I feel like, of the moment. Um, and it talked about how, like, some Chinese are already not planning to go back to their hometown for Chinese New Year, which is sort of the Chinese version of Christmas. And it's in January, so it's still a couple of months away or towards the end of January, rather. Um, but then there were these tweets coming out of the U.S. that said, like, you know, family's number one and I'm not staying home because of some virus. Like, I'm traveling and that's that. And the comparison being made between China, where like they're not even wearing masks in China anymore. Um, like, it's fully back to normal or as normal as, as, as it could be. Um, and yet they're still being very, very cautious, like extremely cautious about travel and moving around. Whereas the U.S. is obviously, I mean, we're up to, what, 200, 150,000 new cases a day. And um, it just seems like, you know, people are just unconcerned. They're just going to keep going about their way. And it made me think a little bit about, you know, like my grandmother lived through the Depression. Um, you know, I, I think our grandparents, you and or, or even parents went through some, some, you know, periods of, of war and strife and things like that. And the sacrifices that people had to make in those generations. And in this generation, it's like, we, we, we can't even stay home for Thanksgiving. Like that's too big of a sacrifice to be made. And, and I just think it says something about this generation. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you're right. I, I, I'm from a more practical perspective as well. I mean, American Thanksgiving and Christmas is all of what a month apart. Yeah. And we, we know that in terms of how the transmission numbers work, 
we're not really going to know what the impact of people going home for Thanksgiving is, was for another two, two and a half weeks, you know, roughly around the time people are making plans uh, as to what they're going to do around Christmas. So presumably we're going to see a, a, a huge spike in numbers in another two, two and a half weeks. Maybe we won't, but likely we will. Uh, and then we're going to be, you know, officially within sort of the Christmas holiday period. That's uh, that's really, really scary stuff. For sure. Things are looking bleak. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. All right, you and I think in the upcoming PR segment, I'm going to uh, take us down memory lane and take a look at one of the major crises, communications crises of 2020. Um, but before I do that, let's get to your your item first. What have you got on deck today? Well, I mean, you you sort of just left off there, Cam, on, on the word bleak. <laughs> <laughs> That's depressing. <laughs> So I figured, why not pick up from bleak? Well, <laughs> you know, I think on a more positive side of of uh, that that bleakness is it looks like we might have some vaccines on the horizon. Um, if if you happen to live in the United States, it, it looks like you might have access to a vaccine. Certainly, a lot a lot earlier than we'll have access to it here in in Canada. But on account of that, I've been getting uh, a question, Cam. That's all over the place, people have been asking me this. And the question is this, can employers compel employees to take a COVID-19 vaccine? Wow, this is going to come up a lot once those vaccines are around. Yeah, this is fascinating. Yeah, it is. It's a really it's a really interesting question. Uh, and of course, you know, like like so many of these issues that we talk about, Cam, this stuff sort of depends on where you live and governing legislation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But generally speaking, you know, when people ask me this question, at least in Ontario and other provinces across Canada, likely speaking, you know, employers, they're not really in a position to re require employees to get vaccinated. Now, here's the inherent contradiction in this, Cam, because you know, at least under Ontario legislation, again, sort of an incomparable legislation in other provinces, an employer does have a duty to provide a safe work environment. So naturally that begs the question, how do we reconcile these positions? If an mm -hmm. employer can't make you get a vaccine, but has to provide a safe work environment, how do you, how do you deal with that? Right. And this is sort of going to be the inherent problem that employers and employees, for that matter, are going to have to face. So, I mean, a safe work environment, I mean, it sounds like employers would have a lot of leeway even today, like if we're not in a pandemic right now, in terms of what they can compel employees to do. I guess I'm thinking about things like consume alcohol on the job. Obviously, can't do that. But are there situations where employers can compel staff to take 
an action rather than just restrict them from an action. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, it depends entirely upon what that action, what that action is. I mean, when we talk about providing a safe work environment and we talked about this cam, I mean, going all the way back to one of our first episodes and really, again, what we're sort of, we're getting at because the question at that time was, well, can my employer make me attend work? Right. Mm -hmm. Given given the fact that there's an ongoing pandemic and really what we were looking at at the time was, well, what is your employer doing to provide that safe work environment? So if they're providing access to PPE, masks and and, you know, social distancing and taking all of the appropriate health recommended steps, then, yeah, um, provided, you know, they're 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 taking those steps in in a proactive manner, then, yeah, they can compel you to go to work. Unless, of course, you require some specific accommodation. And this is what I was getting at in terms of trying to reconcile these two sort of difficult positions of, you know, if your employer can't make you get a vaccine, but they have to provide a safe work environment, how does that work? Well, I mean, one of the main reasons why they can't compel you, I mean, we're dealing with circumstances around human rights legislation. We've talked about the duty to accommodate many times on this show, right, Cam? So, I mean, you know, if you have a pre-existing medical condition or, you know, a religious reason or some other disability that would prevent you from being able to get vaccinated, then, you know, an employer has to respect that. Um, you know, we also have the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which sort of enshrines that, that you know, principles of the right to inviolability and freedom, as well as other mm -hmm. freedoms of religion and rights to dignity and privacy. So there's a lot of competing interests going on here. Um, and our friends to the, or my, again, I always say our friends, I always think you're here for some reason, Cam. <laughs> I know you're not here. I, I still think of I them the same way. here once upon a time. Yes. So um, my friends to the South, uh, you know, they have sort of similar anti-discrimination language under their, the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 64. And again, it's sort of that idea that requires employers to provide reasonable accommodation on, on grounds such as, you know, medical or religious exemptions. So you and hang so, on. So for that one though, mm -hmm. like you're talking about the, the discrimination, that means like your example was if someone has a medical condition and they cannot take the vaccine, that the employer would have to accommodate that in most cases, which again is sort of saying that they don't have to do something, but can they compel you to do something if you kind of know what I mean? Because it seems to me like taking a vaccine is quite invasive, actually. It would kind of set a strange precedent on some level that, that your employer can compel you to do this because it, it would seem to open kind of a, a can of worms. But I, I may be jumping ahead here. No, I mean, I, I can't, I can't, under the current legislative framework, I can't really see, um, a situation right now where an employer can say you have to do this. They can't make it a condition of your continued employment to say, if you do not have a vaccine, then we will fire you. I mean, what they can do, and this sort of gets to that question, right? Of, well, what can an employer do if an employee says, no, I'm not, I'm not getting vaccinated. Forget it. Um, you know, they, they could, they could say to an employee, that, you know, they're obliged to work from home and they can't return to work and until they've either had the vaccine or can be certain that the workplace is safe. Um, alternatively, they could instruct that employee to, to continue to wear a mask, to social distance if, in fact, they do come to the office, whereas, you know, other individuals who have had the vaccine wouldn't necessarily have to do that. I mean, again, from a practical perspective, this could get really messy really fast, right? 
Um, yeah. What I suspect, what I suspect we're eventually going to see Cam is, you know, the government mandating on some level that everyone get vaccinated. Now, you know, this might Im- sort of provide employers with, with some recourse to address employees who refuse to get vaccinated, but it, you know, it's still not going to trump any sort of exemptions for, you know, medical or, you know, disability or religious reasons. But also if, if I get vaccinated and someone else in my office refuses to do so, or uh, has an excuse for not doing so, I may then think the workplace is not safe. Like, because even if you're vaccinated, of course, it's never a guarantee that you can't get the, get the virus. Would I then have a, have a case there if someone was going in who refused vaccination and I was sitting next to him? Well, hey, that's a great, great question. And I don't doubt that somewhere down the road, I'm going to get a call from an employee asking me precisely that question. Hey, what can I do? Um, I mean, really sort of the, the, the most logical step would be, you know, you'd contact the Ministry of Labor or some comparable institution, depending on where you where you are, comparable body. Um, and at least in on Ontario and again, in a lot of other provinces, what happens is that triggers a representative from the ministry of labor to come into your workplace and make a determination as to whether or not the workplace is safe. So, you know, if they came to the conclusion, Hey, this isn't a safe work environment because, you know, um, Joe Smith decided that he didn't want to get a vaccine then maybe, again, the result is that Joe Smith isn't allowed to work from the office. Where I think it gets really, really interesting is, you know, if you have, let, let's sort of put together, a, a, you know, a broad hypothetical. Let's say, you know, the government introduces some sort of vaccine mandate and says, you know, you know, all employees um, should get. I don't, I don't know that the Canadian federal government is going to say or, or provincial governments are going to say, you know, you, you have to do this. It will like be something along the lines of you should probably do this. Mm -hmm. Um, and then of course, you know, domain over healthcare issues is a whole other complicated issue in Canada in terms of whether it's federal or provincial jurisdiction. Um, anyway, long story short, even in a circumstance where, you know, the government says you should really do this. If an employee refuses to do it, I think what, where it gets interesting is can employer then say, well, if you're not prepared to do this, then you're going to have to go off on, you know, an unpaid leave um, or or, you know, something something to that effect. Can an employer, will they have the discretion to effectively punish an employee like that? I, and I mean, at this point, I don't know. All I can say is, no, they can't fire you because you don't want to get the vaccine. Um, but that doesn't doesn't mean that they still don't have an obligation to provide a safe work environment for everybody who's there. So it, it it's, it's a really complicated and yeah. sort of con- could be a convoluted mess. I feel like at some point, maybe it might be possible to fire somebody for not taking the vaccine, depending on what's going on. I mean, you obviously know the legal issues much better, but I mean, I was thinking again, like if, if it was me as a small business owner and I had 10 or 15 staff or something like that. And like for just, for, for the staff to look out for each other, to try and create an environment that everyone feels comfortable in, and you strongly compel your staff to get the vaccine. I mean, again, as a private business owner, I, I would want the discretion, obviously, to say, oh, this guy's not a, not a team player in this way. Um, but, but I can see how this is really dicey because it is literally injecting part of the virus into your body. And it would seem odd if your workplace could, could compel you to do that because that seems like, you know, far overreach, um, you know, for that kind of thing. 
Well, that's just it, right? I mean, inevitably, it's going to be a balancing act between the employee's right to physical integrity. We, we all have a right to our own physical integrity, right? Um, against that criteria of, of proportionality and whatever the objective is that, that we're seeking. Um, all that being said, yeah, I just, I don't see how you can say you have to get a vaccine. I mean, I just don't see that happening. I think the more interesting question is what are the repercussions going to be mm -hmm. if something is mandated by the, by the government and an employee refuses to, what sort of leeway or discretion will an employer have to say, you know, okay, you can't come into the office. I mean, I think that's the logical one, right? You'll, you'll have mm -hmm. to continue to work from home until this thing passes um, and we'll find some way to accommodate you. But again, that duty to accommodate is still a two-way street, right, Cam? I mean, it's up to the point of undue hardship. So if an employer can sort of clearly set out that, look, by trying to accommodate your refusal to get a vaccine, um, and again, you'd still have to establish some, some, some sort of discriminatory purpose for requiring that accommodation in the first place, i.e., you know, a, a religious issue or an issue of disability. Um, you know, I just, I just don't know. I don't know where that ends. Um, you know, so it's, it's going to be sort of, sort of interesting to see how this plays out. You know, going off on a bit of a tangent here, like I, I'm glad that you brought this up because I do think that we've sort of considered the vaccine to be this panacea or, you know, th this moment where this will all end and we can all get vaccinated and life can return to normal. But there's going to be so many issues around these vaccines. I, I mean, I fully suspect, what is there, three or four of them that are getting close now, I think. I fully expect at least one of these to have some unforeseen problem with it, because obviously the test, the testing period is being sped up a lot uh, for, for these vaccines, but then also just the distribution and then who's going to take it, who isn't going to take it, who's going to go first, which countries go first, which people go first. How, how do we break all of this down? And then there's the sort of anti-vaxxers as well, who are going to make a big deal about it as well, which brings in sort of another form of risk. And so there's going to be a lot of issues around this. But, you know, I was thinking you and another one on the, on the employment issue, like I'm thinking ahead to, Again, let's say it's the NBA or the NHL. They're going back into a bubble. And obviously the athletes need to be kept safe in there to not interrupt the, the, the season or the games or whatever it might be. I mean, if you had a staff member of the NHL or of a newspaper who refused to take the vaccine and you kept them away and you said, okay, then you can't go cover this because you have to have a vaccine to, to cover this, to be part of it. I wonder if even that can be seen as kind of a discrimination because in a way that that person would be punished in a way for not taking the vaccine if they couldn't cover something that required that. I mean, that's a journalism example, but I'm sure there's going to be other issues like that to come up over time that we're not even thinking about now. Well, keep in mind, Cam, that when, you know, when we say we throw the word discrimination around a lot. And I speak with a lot of clients who, who contact me and they say, I've been discriminated against. I've been discriminated against by my employer. Really, if you're using that word, it has legal implications in the sense that discriminatory conduct has to be tied to a prohibited ground of discrimination, race, gender, creed, sexual orientation, 
these sorts of issues. So it, it's, it's not enough to say that, well, my employer won't send me on this particular report to cover a, you know, a particular sporting event because I've refused to have a vaccine. You can't say I'm being discriminated against. What's the prohibited ground of discrimination that's at play there? Um, you know, you'd have to cite some prohibited ground in order for, for it to constitute and qualify as quote unquote discriminatory conduct. That's key. Right, right. Uh, yeah. And that's that's a very good reminder for people, me and and others as well, just that discrimination means something and you can't just throw it around um, when something doesn't go your way. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's a good reminder. Um, you and I, I get the sense that this this really is going to be something that we're going to see unfold over the coming months. Um, I think, you know, if, if you see articles on this or you see bits um, out there on this issue, um, let me know and we can pass it on to the audience as well via our Twitter feed and, and Facebook and things like that, because I, I do think this is going to be front and center for a lot of employers actually are going to be dealing with this. Um, so it's definitely something we want to keep up on. Show your support to the PR and Law podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. You know, Ewan, we are um, basically in December and uh, we're at the end of the year. And this has been just an insane year on so many levels uh, for people around the world. But I also started thinking about you know, what are some year-end things we can do in terms of PR and look back at things that happened this year that we can learn from, you know, or take a look at? And so I began sort of investigating some of these case studies from 2020. And I think some of our listeners may have heard of these before, but I certainly think that a lot of them are, are local. And so for most people, they're, they're going to be, you know, quite quite new to hear about. And the first one I wanted to talk about today, Ewan, is Burger King. You may be aware, but late in 2019, um, Burger King launched the Impossible Whopper in the U.S. And then in early 2020, in January, in fact, uh, the U.K. Burger King launched uh, a plant-based burger called the Rebel Burger. Um, I'm going to focus on the UK example, um, but are you familiar with sort of the fast food giants going into sort of the plant plant-based food game. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I didn't know it was called the impossible Whopper. <laughs> that sort of strikes me as just a weird. Well, well it's, it's based on impossible foods, which is their, their brand name. Whereas beyond, oh, okay. that be, yeah, makes more sense. Beyond meats is the other one. I've tried both. Actually, I'm, I prefer the impossible burger, but I still think impossible is a weird name for a company and a burger. So that, that still stands. But anyway, to the point. So in January 2020, Burger King rolls this out in the United Kingdom and it launches kind of a big marketing blitz around it. And they say, you know, it's a it's a it's it's a burger for vegans. And they say on their ad, they don't say that directly, but they say on their ads 100% Whopper, 0% beef. And again, it is becoming, you know, a lot more popular to think about the foods that you're buying and consuming. Um, and there is a movement towards sort of flexitarians uh, as people cut down on their on their meat intake. Um, so, you know, as part of this, Burger King sent out a tweet. It said, you asked and we listened, introducing the Rebel Whopper, our first plant-based burger. On Facebook, 
Burger King. This is way weird to me, but they posted a graphic and the words on the graphic are tastes of being woke. So you can see potentially <laughs> tastes of being woke. So, I mean, people have, uh, have basically inferred from this that, you know, they're going after a younger a demographic that does pay attention to, to what they eat and, and are moving away from meat, actually. A lot of studies have shown that a lot of young people are moving away from it. And again, when you're talking about woke, I, I don't think this was done in a satirical way based on the product, um, but, but still odd. But you can see what they're, what they're trying to do. So people rushed out and they bought the Rebel Whopper and they ate it until somebody looked at the fine print. And on the wrapper of this burger is very small print that says the rebel whopper patty is cooked on the same grill as the beef burgers making it inedible for vegetarians Hmm. i don't think i need to explain why why this is an issue um on top of that the burger is coated in egg-based mayonnaise which is another issue for for vegans so i mean naturally you're going to have a huge uproar about this in the uk which indeed happened people felt that burger king was being dishonest uh in what they were saying and a a lot of uh vegans and vegetarians ate this burger unaware of how it was prepared so burger king issued a statement ewan here's what the burger place had to say the rebel whopper is plant-based however It is cooked on the same broiler as our original Whopper to deliver the same unique flame-grilled taste. Due to shared cooking equipment, the Rebel Whopper was not suitable for vegetarians. Furthermore, even contacted by the media, a Burger King spokesperson said um, that if somebody didn't want mayonnaise on the burger, they should just say, no mayo. Just request no mayo. There's all kinds of problems with this, Ewan, which I'm going to get into in a second. But the story actually goes further. The UK has uh, uh, an authority called the Advertising Standards Authority, which basically looks at sort of the truthfulness in advertising uh, in the UK. And they launched an investigation into this after receiving so many complaints uh, from consumers. And it issued a statement as well. This is part of it. We considered that consumers would understand the claims 100% Whopper, no beef, and in particular, the claim plant-based burger to mean that the burger did not contain any beef or animal products. That makes sense. If it says no beef, you would think that uh, consumers would assume there's no beef in it. The statement carried on again, quote, we considered that the presence of the vegetarian butcher logo, the green color palette, and the timing of the ad and product release to coincide with Veganuary contributed further to the impression that the product was suitable for vegans and vegetarians. And I think there's that new information in there. It was, I'm not sure how to say it right. It's veganuary or veganuary or whatever it is, but it's, it's, you know, basically a month where we're, you know, vegan consumption is, is, is celebrated and, and, you know, Burger King timed the launch of this burger um, along with, with that event. You and I guess from a, a, a legal point of view, <laughs> I, I, and I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but are there problems with this even legally just at first first glance? Uh, I mean, hey, I, I certainly think that there could be right um, if you're if you're not being clear with what your product is and you're misrepresenting what your product is, then, yeah, I think you, you could theoretically be opening yourself to some liability. 
Um, again, what does the fine print say, right? And this is this is a huge problem as a consumer in this day and age in any number of sectors whereby we agree and and execute contracts unknowingly all the time, notably in terms of the tech products that we use, right? And we're not thoroughly reviewing the fine print. So mm-hmm. what does the fine print say? I mean, just as an aside, I just wanted to comment. I mean, not from a legal perspective, but I, I mean, look, I think most vegetarians, and I can understand if if the understanding is that this was strictly vegetarian, but most vegetarians, at least that I've encountered, and I, I lived with one for a number of years, my mother was a pescatarian, um, they understand that when they go to a restaurant and they order a vegetarian product, that it's quite likely that that, you know, that item has come into contact with something that contains meat. I mean, notably, if you're eating any French fries, for example, it's a potato. You think, well, that's about as strictly vegetarian as things can get. But it's probably fried in a deep fryer that has had other things in it that have been fried that likely are are meat-based. Um, so, you know, I don't think I, I don't think vegetarians are completely naive in this in this uh, endeavor. And I guess maybe with the fast food joint or giants, it's sort of a different case and thinking that, well, you have the the means and uh, the resources to sort of strictly separate these things. But, you know, um, that's going to be difficult in any restaurant environment. You know, I, I I'm going to there's four key points here I want to I want to review with regards to this ad campaign. Um, but I, I think the, the, the biggest one for, for me, Ewan, really when I think about this is, I mean, clearly there was, this is misleading. That's the best case scenario is this was, you know, slightly misleading or, or, you know, they didn't think it through fully, but it does amaze me that they would market it in this way, even using the word vegan in some cases, knowing that this was the case. And, and I, I say that because, you know, even in communications in, in places where I've worked, you, you look over this copy with a fine-tooth comb and, and you, you challenge it. I mean, you send it through a lot of people so it can be vetted and people can challenge the wording that you're using and challenge their own assumptions about what the product is and how it's being marketed. So it always surprises me when something gets to this point where the campaign has been approved and is executed but still has these problems in it. And so it does raise questions about sort of how the marketing team functions inside Burger King. But anyway, there's four, four key points here that I think are problematic. And one is, I mean, it's clearly disingenuous for Burger King to run this kind of ad campaign. And I think part of it, um, and I've seen this shared elsewhere, is that Burger King is a fast food restaurant. Um, it makes no bones about that. And I think when you're going to go down this path, there's going to be skepticism to begin with. Like you said, Ewan, if you're vegetarian, you realize that chances are some of your food may have may have come into contact with some, some meat product. That's definitely one. But I think Burger King maybe could have addressed that head on a little bit more, more um, directly. Point number two, it was dishonest. And I, to me, there's really no getting around that. When you're marketing this to, to vegans and when you're launching it in a month that celebrates veganism, uh, and you're saying no beef or 0% beef, um, I think that means something factually. And um, so that's an issue. It's, it is plain dishonest. Point number three, the print, the small print, I also had a problem with because it, it actually ultimately was consumers 
who had looked at the small print after many people had already consumed the burger um, to find this information, which tells me that that was done on purpose. I mean, it was put in the fine print because they knew it to be true at the beginning, but didn't mention it elsewhere and purposely misled clients or customers in another direction. So I think it's sort of a reveal that that language actually was in there. And then the fourth one to me is the media statement that was issued by Burger King seemed really defiant to me. And I think this is a a difficult one because Burger King basically said, look, you know, this is how we make them. We never said we made them, you know, in any other way. And so, you know, what's the big deal? It was it was quite defensive that way. And, you know, I, I think all of this does paint a picture of a company that isn't too concerned about these kinds of issues, because from being dishonest to putting the truth in fine print and then sort of being deflective or defensive on media statements is all kind of part of one in the same kind of uh, external personality or external uh, communications image. Yeah, I mean, it also just general, more generally, Cam, begs the question that, you know, if you're really concerned about um, what you're putting into your body and your health and well-being, what are you doing in a fast food joint to begin with? And, you know, my 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 concern and issue with a lot of these meat alternative products, and this, is, this isn't new. I mean, you know, some of the other meat alternative products that have been around for, for years, and I'm thinking of, you know, I think it's Eve's is one of the huge companies that that did, you know, they were one of the first ones that introduced things like veggie meat. It's kind mm-hmm. of like veggie mince meat. And I've uh, used Eves for years when I was in Canada. Yeah, you know Eves, right? Yeah. Um, vegetarian hot dogs. I, I mean, you know, I, I've consumed these products over, over the years myself. But I mean, let's not kid ourselves. This is highly, highly, highly processed food. This is, there. there's nothing particularly natural about this at all. Um, and I think that's actually sort of my, my real issue with these products is the suggestion that this is somehow natural. It's plant-based. And I think that that's actually the phrase that should be underscored plant-based based does not mean entirety based means that the majority of what we are, what we are putting in it is from a plant. That's that's my understanding interpretation of a phrase like plant-based. You're not eating a plant. You're eating a, a heavily processed you know product that is not going to be particularly healthy for your body any which way you look at it. Yeah, I agree and I've heard that that argument before about, you know, the, the a lot of these sort of meat alternatives uh, are are heavily processed and they are uh, for sure. But you know, you and we had a, a friend, uh, Nathan, who, who lived in Hong Kong, he's American. Uh, and he, he's been a vegetarian for decades. Uh, he's in his mid forties now. And he would often say to me, you know, I tell people, he says, I tell people I am vegetarian. And so they, they make a lot of vegetable Chinese dishes, or they use a lot of vegetables in home cooking. And he said, sometimes I just want to taste ribs or chicken nuggets or chicken wings or, you know, this kind of thing. He goes, I'd like to have comfort food slash junk food to some degree that is just not made with meat. Because he said sometimes vegetarians do want to have maybe junk food from time to time, um, but but it's, it's much harder for them to do so. So in this case, I kind of understand. Like th- this is where this product would fit in. I mean, if you're with a group of friends and you're the only vegetarian, you go to Burger King, you've got something there that kind of. I mean, the meat versions are not healthy either. <laughs> so, um, 
you know, that, that, that's sort of the, the market it's going after. And I can see how, how that, that may work, but y- your point certainly stands. I, I wanted to close though, you and on, on one last thing. And I was reading, you know, some, some of the sort of takedowns of, of what Burger King did and this one communications firm, you know, talked about this and, and I thought it made a really good point. Uh, it's by MD communications. I'll put a link in the show notes, but it says that, that, you know, this vegan issue is really damaging because customers aren't stupid. They can tell when a company is making a change seemingly for the greater good, but for cynical reasons. And it says, I'm a big fan of the phrase, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing properly. And in general, this is a good mantra for businesses. Burger King has demonstrated nicely what happens when you go after a market without proper care, and it's not a good look. And I think this really hits the nail on the head quite, quite directly. You look at Burger King, you look at their business, you look at what they sell, what they serve, their entire sort of business model. And then you see them sort of jump on the vegetarian vegan bandwagon. And yeah, customers can't sniff that out and go, oh, you know, this is just a cynical ploy to, you know, get some attention rather than a business that actually cares about a certain segment um, of the population. And, and when customers can sniff that out, it can be very damaging to your reputation. Yeah, absolutely. And we know that the fast food industry in particular is really, it really faces an uphill battle in this regard, right? It's not historically been the industry that you look to for trustworthy and full disclosure of the, you know, uh, ingredients <laughs> or whereabouts of its, of its product. So I, I do sympathize, I suppose, on some level um, in that they're going to be under a microscope no matter what they do. But then to your point, Cam, that's all the more reason to make sure that they get the message right out of the gate. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa, hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Oh, check it out, check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR in Law podcast. Okay, Ewan. Also, we're nearing the end of the year. I'm seeing a lot of good year-end pieces come out already. But uh, what have you got on the Check This Out segment? Well, Cam, actually, this is very apropos of what you were just discussing. Um, I, so uh, two things. But the first thing I wanted to talk about was this, this really interesting article I read in Bloomberg uh, called Butter is Booming. Mm. Butter is booming, Cam. Butter's back. I've uh, heard about this. Back. Yeah. Dairy is surviving. Uh, and it's been, a, it's been a good year for Butter, Cam. The pandemic uh, certainly hasn't hurt the industry. Oh, I guess it's all that you know, home baking um, people doing, doing their bread and, uh, all the other things that they've been baking at, at home. It's been a banner year for butter. It's uh, on track to apparently top 2 billion pounds for the first time in the United States since 1943. Really? 1943, so, Cam. What's, what's yeah. powering that? Where's that coming from? Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the common sort of two things, the first thing being that, yeah, we're in a pandemic and everybody's home. People are, are looking for things to do. And one of the, one of the things that have been top of most people's lists, uh, have been cooking, learning to cook, learning to bake all of these, these sort of projects at home. And apparently that's just been a, a huge boon for, for the butter industry. I mean, Land O'Lakes, which is a Minnesota-based dairy cooperative cam, it expects to sell between 275 million to 300 million pounds of butter this year, which is a 20% increase. And let, you know, think about that for a second. Restaurants in the United States, all across the United States, 
Um, a lot of them have been closed throughout the pandemic. And of course, they're always one of the main purchasers of, of butter. Uh, they're closed. And despite that mm-hmm. fact, we're still seeing this, this huge increase. So I think that's the first point. It's just, it's, it's pandemic based, but I think the second point, and this goes to what we're, what we're discussing, uh, vis-a-vis Burger King, that people are looking for more natural products to put into their body. And the one thing you can say about butter, at least good butter, is it's not particularly processed, right? Mm-hmm. And any of those sort of alternative products, notably margarine, um, they are heavily processed. So, you know, if you're going to have one of these products, why not go with the one that's more or less natural? And interestingly, this article sort of talks about milk in the same way that whole milk is outselling 2% milk cam for the first time in 15 years. And again, the, the thinking behind that is that it's less processed than, than 2% mm-hmm. milk and people are more inclined to kind of think, well, if I'm going to put milk in my body, I may as well go for the whole enchilada and um, stick with something that isn't heavily processed. You know, on the, on the butter point, I, and I wish I could remember this now, but I saw an interview with a chef and he was asked like, what would, you know, home chefs or people who are just cooked dinner for their families, what would they be most surprised about in a sort of restaurant kitchen? Um, and he said the amount of butter that cooks use, he said that it's in almost everything. <laughs> he said it makes almost everything taste better. And he talked about scrambled eggs and how a lot of people put in a little bit of milk or a little bit of cream in there. And he said, if you use butter instead, it makes a huge difference. And that's how you get the really light and fluffy and creamy, um, you know, scrambled eggs. And I've remembered that it was a couple months ago, I guess I heard this interview and I thought, yeah, butter it does make sense. I mean, it, it definitely does make things taste better. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. You know that in a, in a anecdotally in a previous life, uh, I, I cooked in restaurants and undeniably butter is in everything. Yeah. It's in everything. And yeah, because it does, it makes things taste better. It's a good stabilizer. Uh, it mm-hmm. infuses well with all kinds of other flavor profiles. It's, it's a really, it, it's, it's a bit of a miracle ingredient. Um, anyway, so this article talks about that. The, the most, the last, last thing I wanted to mention about this article, Cam, is cheese. Apparently Mm. this has been the main driver of the dairy industry's resilience. So Americans consume almost three times as much of it per person as they did in 1970. Three times, Cam. So Americans love their cheese. There you have it. Yep. Yep, they sure do. Melted cheese everywhere on pizzas in crust all over the place. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. We're talking food, Ewan, because I had a couple things today. Both are our podcast episodes again. The first is uh, David Chang, uh, Momofuku's uh, founder. Um, he was interviewed by Terry Gross on Fresh Air, and it was an absolutely fascinating interview. His family actually comes from North Korea, and he talked about, you know, his parents... Uh, moving to the United States and how, you know, he was really ashamed of his parents for, for cooking food from Asia when all of his friends in the U S you know, were having typical American food and how he grew up with problems with his dad and some resentments. And, and it, it was really open and he was very candid and he discussed some really personal things also about, um, you know, being, being addicted to work and what that means and how that affects, you know, his family and things like that. Uh, cause he just had a child this year. So I, I can't recommend that 
that highly enough. And I'll put a link uh, in the show notes to that episode. But the second one, and I feel like I'm doing this almost every week now, um, is the Ezra Klein show. Um, it broke this week, actually, that Ezra Klein is moving to the New York Times. Um, he co-founded Vox, so he'll be leaving Vox for the Times, where he'll continue with this podcast. But he actually had a rerun of a show this week, and I, I listened to it the first time many months ago when it came out the first time, and I listened to it again, and I found it even more powerful. And it's actually, his guest is uh, Vivek Murthy, who was the Surgeon General in the United States under Barack Obama. And he talks about the country's loneliness epidemic. And he goes into quite some detail about the state of loneliness right now, what people are struggling with, what are some of the things they reflect on uh, end of life, some of the causes of loneliness, you know, ways to, to deal with them, how, how it happens. Um, and, and it's really a remarkable interview. Um, it's, it's one of those conversations where you can sit down, uh, you know, close your eyes, put headphones on and listen, and it will completely take you into another world because, um, it, it's, it's quite powerful and it's, it's really pertinent now too, I think, especially in this age of the pandemic where, you know, there's a lot less of socializing or, or meeting up with people that, you know, although that's not just loneliness, you can be in a, in a, in a room with a hundred people um, and still feel lonely. So it's more than just sort of the physical people around you. But um, I, I can't recommend this highly enough either. If you had to pick one of these, I would pick the Ezra Klein show, but I think both are fantastic. And if, if you can set aside some time, you're in for a real treat, I think on both of these. Oh, that's great. And yeah, the loneliness definitely is a, you know, particularly for those people who live by themselves right now and, you know, aren't in other people's bubbles and um, have, have really, they're in a really difficult spot, right? Um, what, what do they do for that basic social interaction that isn't popping on a Zoom call? Um, it, yeah, it's, it's really hard out there, right? Yeah, it sure is. So, um, anyway, I, I never want to end the show on a, on a sad note, you but we, we keep doing that. Well, Hey, let me, let me, let me yeah. pick it up. Then. Cheer it up quickly a bit. Talk about one other thing. I've been wanting to talk about this for a couple of weeks and we, we, it just, it doesn't come up. And that's, I finally got around to watching the queen's gambit on Netflix cam. This has been one of those word of mouth shows. Yes. That, has really has really taken off. I don't know if you've watched it. I have. I've watched uh, four episodes. I think. Okay. I don't know. I don't know how you feel about it. I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, you know, just for those who haven't heard of it, if that's possible at this point, you know, it's set in the 1960s. It stars Anya Taylor Joy's protagonist, Beth or Taylor, excuse me, and Anya Taylor Joy. Sorry if I mispronounced mm-hmm. your name again. I feel like I'm always mispronouncing people's names in the show. Anyway, she's, um, she's the protagonist, Beth Harmon. She's a child prodigy, prodigy, uh, prodigy, prodigy. <laughs> it's all right, Ewan. It's the end of the show. <laughs> she's a chess player and she yes. also happens she's to be good. a drug addict. That's the premise of the show. A lot of people have watched it. I loved it. It's great. Uh, I'll link to an interesting article that I, that I've been kind of funny that I read yesterday um, which was titled the queen's gambit is actually Rocky. So your dad will <laughs> love it. <laughs> yeah. Send that over. I've actually read some great commentary on, on the queen's gambit. Um, if I can find that, I'll, I'll drop them in as well. Cause they're, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very well done series. 
Anyway, good. You and you uh, helped us out. End on a positive note. Uh, so thank you, everyone, for joining us again. Um, next week, I, I just want to give a bit of a tease. We're going to have a guest on next week uh, from uh, New York City who really specializes in politics and communications. And she's going to talk about uh, some of the things that work, some of the things that don't work, uh, you know, especially with, with President Trump and, and President-elect Joe Biden. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that discussion. So you'll definitely want to join us uh, next week as well. Uh, don't miss a show. You can subscribe in your podcast app of choice or to our YouTube or SoundCloud channels. And you can follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And our newsletter, of course, at prlawpodcast.club. Please swing by there. Drop your name and email address in there. We can keep in touch. prlawpodcast.club. So for you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. Light it up. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewan Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support.